you are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. You are about to see. You are about to see. That belongs in a museum. You are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. That belongs in a museum. Another exciting episode of Treasury Cast, the show that celebrates the greatest comic book format of all time, the Treasury Edition. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rob Kelly. And joining me again to once again talk about Batman is editor of the 13 Dimension.com and my boss, Dan Greenfield. Hello, Dan. Welcome back to the show. Hey, Rob. <laughs> now, some of you are probably wondering why, if it's only episode three, are we having Dan back on again? Well, the truth to be told is Dan told me that if I ever covered this particular issue, which is limited collector's edition number C-51, Batman, the Raz Agul storyline, uh, he said if I didn't involve him, uh, well, the words, something to the effect of, nice podcast you have there, would be a shame if something happened to it, did cross <laughs> his lips. So uh, I, as, as everyone knows, I, I will give in to terroristic threats. So here we are. Dan is back again to talk about this book. Uh, this, you know, after the first two episodes, uh, where I went on and on about all the special features that Treasury Comics had, and it's one of the reasons I love them, this book goes completely in the opposite direction, in that it has really no special features other than a cover gallery and, and a brief little editorial. This book, what's special about this particular book is that it is basically the, one of the early trade paperbacks in that it collects a, a particular storyline that you normally would have had to have gotten across a couple of different comics, all between two covers. And DC acknowledges that right on the inside cover from an editorial by the president, Jeanette Kahn. Uh, I mean, this book is just amazing. But let's before we start all of that, let's start with Dan. Why is this one so beloved to you? And why did you feel the need to threaten me over it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, it, you know, it's it's because it, it's the perfect marriage of story to to style to to format. Um, it is one of the most cinematic Batman stories ever, and it you know some people have even said it's like well it's really bat it's really James Bond in a Batman suit, and I and there's something to that because it definitely has that James Bond you know Absolutely. globe hopping thing going on, yep. but it is. Between the scope of the story and the artwork, Neil Adams' artwork, to to see it in this basically IMAX version of the story is is a perfect way of seeing it and reading this story. And you know the the thing about the story in and of itself is actually a lot longer. When it was originally in issues in the early seventies, it was really like six or seven or eight different kind of periodic you know uh, uh, stories. Until they got to the final uh, uh, trilogy, which which wraps up the the first Razogul saga, here they boil it down to the four uh, chapters that you really need to read. And the, and the, what's amazing about it is that these four chapters it's seamless. You have the introductory chapter, and then you have the trilogy, and it reads like a movie. So that's that's why I think it's it is something that I really really wanted to. To, to talk about because as a kid this was one of my absolute go-to Batman stories. Yeah, it uh, and 
specifically it reprints Batman's 232 and then 242 through 244. Right. Uh, and like I said, the, the three of the four chapters are drawn by Neil Adams, and then there's one drawn by Irv Novick, which is kind of amazing. The Irv Novick chapter, I think, blends in pretty well, but we'll get to that in a moment. We, we need to talk about this cover. Yeah. This wraparound cover, which was commissioned new for the book by Neil Adams. This is, I think, inarguably one of the great Batman images of all time. And when you think about how many Batman images there are, uh, even if you I, even if you would say this is part of the top 50 Batman images of all time, that's still an amazing compliment. This is remarkable, this cover. It, it, it's an amazing piece of work. And it is, for me, It's there are two great, I mean, there are so many great Neil Adams covers and so many great Batman Neil Adams covers but this is one of the top two, and which whether it's number one or number two depends on the mood I'm in. The only one that I think that comes that that's kind of at its same level is the Batman two fifty one, the Joker cover, ah, where yes. the Joker's standing over Park Avenue. The two of them are are I think really one and one A, and this is just an amazing thing between the the. the 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 you know Ra's al Ghul looming in the background, Batman's you know rage and anger, you know Talia sort of dispassionate off to the side, and then of course Robin on the ground. It's got all the right elements. It, it really is a, a riff on on Batman two thirty two, but it improves upon what was already a great cover. It makes two thirty two even better. Yeah, uh, no less authority than Alex Ross. Uh, sang this uh, cover's uh, virtues in the hardcover book, Batman Cover to Cover, uh, where different artists and writers and, and people of note involving in the Batman legend picked one of their favorite covers. And this is what Alex Ross had to say about this particular cover. And we know that Alex Ross is a fan of the Treasuries because uh, he said it's his favorite format comics of all time. And in fact, it's his quote that is on the front page of my site, treasurycomics.com. But this is what uh, Alex said about it. He said, one of the single greatest and most dramatic pieces of Batman cover art has to be Neil Adams's cover to the oversized limited collector's edition of Batman's classic first encounter with Rasha Ghoul. The Denny O'Neill, Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams epic was among the most important storylines in comics, and long before trade paperback collections would routinely put together popular issues of comic books in one format, there was the giant comic. Uh, he says, "Of course, uh, this specific Batman issue was of striking impact to my seven-year-old eyes. For in 1977, it was not uncommon; it was not common to see the world's most celebrated superheroes laid out dead before you." Of course, this time, Robin was not really dead, or at least wouldn't be for another decade or so, depending on how you look at it. But he sure seemed to be getting dead by the first page you open up to, where he is illustrated as being shot to death by unseen assassins. Imagine my scarred young mind, never fully understanding at that point, thinking, they can't really do that to him, can they? He's on TV. There's masterful rendition of the tension in Batman's screaming body, kneeling down behind the lifeless form of his teenage chum, seemed to signal a change in comics. By having such realistic draftsmanship, the world of superheroes would have would have to become much more real. The magnificent scratchboard-like effect of Rayshad Ghoul's villainous visage still makes me wonder how Neil pulled off the magic that he did. Yeah, this thing is just simply gorgeous. Uh, it is really beautiful, and like I said, it's on the inside cover. There is an editorial from Jeanette Kahn. It's titled "In Tribute to a Rare Masterpiece." And this is not the first time that DC collected a storyline in its treasuries. A couple of the Tarzan books have uh, the origin of Tarzan and then a, an ongoing Tarzan storyline collected together. And, of course, the Dick Tracy treasury 
has one long storyline from the newspaper strip collected in one book. So those were similar. But this is really the first time DC went into its vaults to say, hey, everybody, this story was really good, and it'll work better if you get to read it all together. And that's what they're doing here, all for a measly $2. Now, did you have this as a kid, Dan? Yeah, I did. I had, I think I actually had this before I even had all of the issues. I remembered I'd had numbers 242, 243, and 244 um, individually that I got out of order because they came out around the time that I was get, really getting into comics in the early 70s, but it wasn't like I was getting them every month or anything. It's like I'd pick them up here, I'd pick them up there. So I had them, but it wasn't until this came out when I was, you know, came out, it's the publication date is August 1977. So I was 10 years old when this thing came out. So I got this and I'm not entirely sure how I did. I think I might've, I think I might've uh, uh, ripped a friend off or something. I don't think I stole it. I don't mean I stole it. I think I, I got a really good deal on it on some kind of <laughs> lane trade or something. You know, I don't think I gave Richie. up much. Let's, Here's a yeah. bunch of Richie Riches. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Hey, buddy, you want, you know, I think I think that's how I ended up with it. And that's when I read 232. And then I subsequently got 232. That's If I remember it correctly, that's how it happened. And I just read it over and over and over again. And, you know, without getting ahead of ourselves, I mean, this was something, like I, I said before, so cinematic as a story um, with the way that it develops and it's the, the way that it's got its, you know, the guest stars and the unexpected guest stars is that in my mind, I, I used to cast it as a movie and we can, we'll, we can talk about that in a little bit, but I did have it as a kid and I was really, really pleased. I, I you know, before we move away from the cover completely, um, I was able to ask Neil Adams how he made the cover. Um, both, both how he made this cover and the cover of 232, because they're both sort of of the same style and, and, and sort of the same artistic style. And if you go to 13th Dimension, and you'll have the links in your show notes, um, so for anybody who's listening and you really want to read what Adams had to say about this cover and why he did it and how he did it, how Jack Adler helped him out with, with the way they were able to produce it at DC, um, there's really a lot of interesting insight in, in the way that he made the cover and what inspired him to do so. So I encourage your, your listeners to read that stuff. And then again, you'll, you'll have the, uh, the links uh, in your show notes, but I, I'm, you know, I have uh, a lot of Batman stuff in my, in my Batman room here at uh, 13th dimension headquarters. <laughs> and, and, and this is one of the things I have up framed signed by Neil Adams. I've got a print actually of this cover of this image, wow. this and, and a gigantic Batman 251 is also, he didn't sign that one. I've already had that one. Uh, already up on my wall, but I was able to get him to sign a copy of this, and it's one of my, you know, one of my prized possessions. I can imagine so. Uh, yeah, I mean, this said we talk about the, the cinematic part of it. Yeah, this is very much a James Bondy adventure. I mean, there's all the stuff out in the mountains and the snow, but I mean, the first page, the very first page, which is the prologue, and it's got Robin crawling up, uh, you know, a, a wall back into his uh, his uh, college, and he walks in, and he's in costume, and he sees two bright lights and all of a sudden right on the very first page he is shot yeah by two different guns i mean i mean not to not to uh i don't know not to use foul language but holy shit you know yeah. i mean <laughs> what an image what what a way to, i mean i can only imagine jenny o'neill when he sat down to write this story i mean i don't know the the particulars but 
can you imagine coming up with this as your opener? Because you're like, wow, holy, what a grabber. I mean, what a grabber of an image. And then it goes right, the second page, you've got Wayne Manor, and Alfred has some piece of mail for Bruce. Bruce opens the, opens the, uh, the mail. There's a card. It says, Dear Batman, we, can, we have Robin. Save him if you can. And it's a photo of Robin trussed up. I mean, that is just such a kick in the face as a, as a way to start your story. Yeah, it, it really is. And it's, it's, it, it is that cinematic, it's like the pre-credit sequence. Yes. You know, it's like a cold open. Yep. And, and you get this, this, this shocking image of Robin being shot. And of course, you're already in that time frame in Batman's history where Robin and Batman were separated and Robin, you know, was now at Hudson University but still, it's it's almost as if they they couldn't do this story without having Robin involved because Robin at this point was only he was a backup feature. He was rarely, in, in fact, this might have been the first time he was in the main story since he had left for college in Batman number two seventeen. I'd have to go back and check, but they bring him back basically just to shoot him. <laughs> uh, so, so Batman goes and investigate. I mean, this is back when he lived in the penthouse. He wasn't right. living in – I should have said that. He wasn't living in Wayne Manor anymore. So he has to go and he has to check out the Batcave. So it means he has to basically swing his way all the way to Wayne Manor. He gets there. He goes – uses the uh, grandfather clock as the secret uh, secret entrance. And waiting for him in the Batcave is Ray Shagul yeah. and his goon. And it's – you know, it's like what an amazing – again, what a great – I love the, the, the sort of weird relationship these two have yeah. is that – He's immediately like, look, I know you're Bruce Wayne, you're Batman. Let's just skip all that and get to the business here. You know, there's none of that. And, and right in panel three, Batman just takes his mask off. He's yeah, he's like, like all okay, right. all right, fine. He's like, you got me. Okay, I'm surprised nobody thought of it before. Yeah, it's it's all of the things that it, – it's interesting because they, DC had made – particularly, you know, both Adams and, and O'Neill were instrumental in this. After the TV show got canceled – they really wanted to – I mean they were already heading in the direction. 1964, a little bit of backstory for your listeners. They probably know it anyway. 64, they came up with the Batman new look where they wanted to get away from a lot of the aliens and the silliness and all of that crazy stuff that was going on. Zebra Batman. Early part. What's that? Zebra Batman and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, all that stuff. And they wanted to strip him down and, and revamp him. They, and they handed him over to Julius Schwartz who had done a really good job of revamping other heroes like Green Lantern and The Flash and, and basically modernizing them. Then the TV show comes along and it becomes this whole other thing. The comics followed suit and became campy again in, in and of themselves, although very, very entertaining. So finally when the show when the show was canceled, they really kind of got back to where they were headed to begin with, which was to return him to his roots, only it was even more so. They went even farther back really to the beginning. You know, Neil Adams only drawing him at night in daylight scenes in Brave and the Bold and, and all of those stories that you've heard over the years. So – by the time this story came out, I think the first issue was 1971, 72, whatever it was, um, they had already started moving away toward this darker version of Batman for a few years. But it was almost as if they felt that if they were going to tell this epic, that they still had to have those classic elements of Batman in the story. So they make a point of taking them away from the penthouse and bring, you know, coming up with a reason for him to go back to Wayne Manor, put him in the Batcave. They've got Robin in it. And then, of course, they, ulti- they automatically segue to remind you of what the origin story is, you know, is. I mean, we're so used to now reading Batman comics, and every other issue, there's an, a, a reference to Batman's dead parents. 
they didn't do that that back then. They didn't tell you that story constantly. Mm. But here you get the flashback where where Adams kind of, you know, draws it almost exactly like that that famous you know two page uh, uh, origin story from Detective Number Thirty Three that was reprinted in Batman Number One. You get Robin's origin story. So right off the bat, you've got Batman Robin the Batcave. This shocking opening where Ra's al Ghul just wanders into the Batcave. However, he gets in, we never find out. And he says, I know you're Bruce Wayne. And he's like, okay, you know I'm Bruce Wayne. Within like like five pages. In today's comic books, that would have taken ten issues to get across. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's absolutely true. I love uh, the character beat on, again, it's page three. Again, you're, they're being set up about what an unusual sort of story this is. And that uh, Raisha Ghul's goon, Ubu, knocks Batman out of the way. Because he says, "Infidel, my lord, my lord Al Ghul leaves the chamber first. And Batman actually puts up with that. Yeah, I love it. He goes, "Okay, friend, you've made your point." And it's yeah. you know he's just sort of like it's you know sort of a classic Batman biding his time kind of thing of like because you know he's not going to put up with that nonsense normally, right? Uh, but I mean they they end up on Rayshad Ghul's jet. They fly all the way to Kakut, and that's when they do the the origin of which you talk about. I love the little shot of Batman just sitting in the plane. Even Rayshad Ghul is like. You don't exhibit any curiosity, curiosity concerning myself. Have you no feelings? And Batman's like, plenty of them, but it won't do any good for my for me to allow my emotions to gain control. Not while there's a job ahead. So, right. <laughs> Batman is just—he's always in control. And it's again—it's it, Neil Adams is the, seeing Neil Adams work at this size. I mean, yeah. not every artist looks great when you blow it up. No. Uh, but boy, this stuff really holds up perfectly well. Yeah, I. I this is, it's, you know, we, it amazes me that, that, you know, it's a different format and a smaller format still that we still don't have an absolute Neil Adams, Denny O'Neill, uh, Neil Adams, uh, uh, Batman, uh, uh, volume from DC. We have the omnibus, we have the, the, the different volumes they did. We have an absolute green lantern, green arrow now, but this is a story that cries out for a really high end, uh, treatment because you're right and and I mean I'd love to see like a, a, a hardcover you know heavy uh, heavy stock version of this story too because the size really really helps to make it helps to make the story and when I do choose to go back and read this story from time to time I don't I have the trade paperback I have the original issues but my but I even today I prefer to go back to this treasury edition because you really feel that drama by reading it at that size. Yeah, and one of the other things that's great, and of course Neil couldn't, didn't know this at the time when he was drawing it, but these four issues, I mean, and again, the one was drawn by Irv Novik, but like just in this first issue, on page 12, there's a giant full-page illustration of them up in the mountains. Yeah. And it's, I mean, you can just hear sort of the John Barry music yes. playing in the background. I mean, yes. I love that Batman has his mask on. Yeah, uh, with his goggles. <laughs> I yes. mean, it should be very silly. It should make you just kind of laugh, but it doesn't because he's sort of maintaining his Batmanness. Uh, well, it's also, yeah. it's also one of those things where, and and you you kind of when you just quoted some of the dialogue, this also is a very very Bronze Age story, because the Bronze Age really was that bridge between the the lighter kind of sillier, even the unintentionally campy elements of the Silver Age. And the grim and gritty so-called, you know, 80s, you know, post-Dark Knight, post-Watchmen. This really is, and in some ways I I, I think the Bronze Age is sort of my favorite because it kind of captures both. You know, Batman, the the dialogue in this is kind of hokey. 
you know, it's 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 kind of dated, and Batman kind of talks certainly not the way he talks now. No. Um, but you do. You have these elements where he's, like you said, he's looking at you know he's wearing the goggles and he's still in his costume, and there's elements that are very very sort of old school comics, but also the the artistry and the drama of sort of the newer school of comics is present there as well. Yeah, when he uh, he gets shot at by a couple of goons as he's heading into the secret lair and he knocks guns out of their hands and he says, can it, sonny boys? And yeah. Then yeah. when he makes it into the cave, he sees Robin sitting there and he says, Batman, good to see you, friend. Same here, Robin. And then the, the, these goon, other goons say, stop it, you can't. And Batman says, sure I can, watch me. Yeah. <laughs> I just love how. And he's then, very glib. He is very glib. And then this other guy approaches him in this ram's horn mask and batman says i've bruised my knuckles and various chins i've climbed a mountain i've dodged bullets i don't have any patience left for phony rituals it's just not bothering with it yeah and this is sort of batman i don't know it's like it's batman at his most annoyed that he has to go this far and of course neil adams is great at a very pissed off looking batman i mean yes whether he's full of anguish on the on the cover but on the insides he just looks so annoyed and of course you know it's got all these great action beats there's in the, yes. in the very first page he fights ubu and there's a great fight there there's yep. a wonderful shot of him punching ubu out where he says after you ubu and it's a reverse shot where the cape is flowing across the panel so it has this corner you see all the scallops like yep. that's a real great shot and then it, it ends with the one of the great final pages in any Batman story, where we're introduced to Talia, uh, who, of course, is Caroline Monroe. And right. uh, she comes in, and she plants a big one on Batman. on it's his so cheek, great. And he has that look of, like, what? And it's, to me, this is the Batman equivalent of, uh, face it, Tiger, you just hit the jackpot. Yes. Same basic idea. It is so sexy. It is so, like, wow. And she looks great. Now... I was, again, I, to go back to it, I, I, I was able to actually ask Neil Adams about the Caroline, and I'm glad you brought up Caroline Monroe, and I knew you would, uh, because I was going to also. <laughs> um, when, I, when I mentioned earlier that I used to cast this as a movie, I kind of look at, the, there are two great Batman stories of the 70s, multiple issue stories. One, the, great, the best single issue story is Batman 251, in my opinion, the one that I mentioned earlier, the Joker story. But in terms of arcs, because this was really the first time they were doing arcs, they did. There was an arc in the '60s, Batman and the the Outsider, one of the great sort of lost to history Batman stories. But in the '70s, there were really two. You know, there, there were the, the the number of arcs increased because that you know DC was doing more of them. Marvel had already been doing them. But this one and the Engelhart Rogers stories really are to me the two ultimate Batman stories of the '70s. The difference is that this reads like a movie, and the Engelhart Rogers story reads like the best Netflix story. You you know, it's like a Netflix series. You know, it's 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 this longer, you know, you know, slower burn kind of story. This is very much like a like we were saying a James Bond movie. And when I was a kid, I used to look at Talia and think Caroline Munro, particularly as she is as she is in Golden Voyage of Sinbad. She's also in right exactly. Um, <laughs> Which, which she's been, and of course she was also in the Spy Who Loved Me, which came out I think what seventy eight, seventy right around the same time. I was certainly reading. Yeah. yeah, okay. So I was reading the, you know, reading this as, at the same time that she was in that movie, and all I could think of was that she was, you know, she was Talia, and I did get to ask Adams. I said, all right, let me ask you, and I showed him the picture, and I've and I've run this at my website, and again I'll send you the, the link for the show notes of of Caroline Monroe looking, you know, wearing the outfit that she wears in Golden Voyage of Sinbad. 
And it's like a dead ringer. The only thing is, is that this came out before that movie came out. So I asked Neil, I said, was there anything there? I mean, she was in Hammer movies by that time. She was kind of a model. Did you ever see her? And I handed him the picture of Carolyn Monroe, and he just kind of looked at it, and he shook his head, and he's you know, like slowly like, like turning it over in his mind, and he's, he says, man, is that some woman. And I was like, I know, right? Yeah, right. I'm like, I'm like, no kidding. He's like, no, that she's really special. And I'm like, do you, do you think there's any kind of connection there? And he said, maybe. He says, you know, you, you as an artist, you take in the things that are around you. Maybe he saw a picture of her in an ad. Maybe he had somehow seen her somewhere and it stayed with him. So he kind of left the door open. It wasn't one of these things where he was like, yeah, definitely, or no, but certainly not. He just wasn't sure, but he was like, could be. Um, and then the other thing with, with Ra's al Ghul, and I've always said that the perfect Ra's al Ghul would have been Christopher Lee. Oh, yeah. And and he also, he's you know, again, he sort of acknowledged that and thinking, no, he was more of a general thing, but you mentioned the cape. He says that Christopher Lee and watching Christopher Lee in one of his Dracula movies actually helped him learn how to draw Batman's cape. Because he saw the way that Christopher Lee acted on screen, one of his drag, you know, with the cape, and how he would enter a room, and how he would exit a room, and how the cape would flow around him. And in his mind, he said, and again, I'll send you the links so some readers can read the full interviews, um, where he says that he imagines that Batman would have rehearsed how his cape would look. That Batman, who was so interested in his image as a as this threatening, sort of intimidating character, would have stood before a mirror and learned how to swoop his cape around for the greatest effect. (laughs) Right, exactly. And when he said that, I thought to myself, you know, he's right. You know, Batman is very much into that idea of trying, of of using his look to intimidate his his adversaries. So you mentioned the idea of the cape flowing as he punched out as you punched out Ubu, that was all very much by design because he says, you know, if you're going to wear a cape, you have to learn also how to fight in a cape. So he was very conscious as an artist on how to use the cape and how Batman would use the cape as part of his uh, adventures. Interesting. Very. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Batman is, you know, he's very into the theatricality of it because he knows yes. that it works. He knows right. that it works. Exactly. So, yeah, it's perfect. So, yeah, I mean, the second chapter involves uh, Batman. This is the one drawn by Irv Novick, who I, I like Irv Novick's stuff. It's not Neil Adams, uh, no. but but I like it. It's perfectly yep. it's perfectly good, I would say. Um, it, this, it, this story involves uh, putting in the papers that Bruce Wayne has been killed uh, as a blind to go after Ra's al Ghul. And there's a there's a whole scene with Matches Malone, Batman's uh, Batman's this other identity. There's a that's the intro- I think that's the introduction of Ma- well, it is. It's the introduction of Matches Malone. Is it really? Oh, yeah, I didn't know that. Because oh. remember, Matches Malone is alive in the story. He's he actually is a different person. And during the course of the chapter, um, because Batman thinks Malone's got he's got information for him, he chases him into the kitchen of this restaurant where he is. Malone turns on him, fires at him. We subsequently find out that the bullet ricocheting killed Malone, and Batman took over the Malone guys. And now, for the 40 years, 40-plus years since, that's been one of the inside jokes. Whenever Batman needs a, sort of an underground um, uh, disguise, he uses matches Malone. But that's <laughs> the start of it, yeah. <laughs> 
very good. Wow, Denny O'Neill, man, just adding things to the DC canon, uh, Batman yeah. canon, left and right. Yeah, I know. Uh, so yeah, and then you've got chapter chapter three, which is back with Neil Adams. Uh, there's the whole there. Matches Malone is there. There's this fight that Batman has with the the, the karate guy. They go back right. and forth about that. Uh, Low lane. Yeah, it's and it's really a wonderfully staged battle. In fact, there's a, I think it's page I'm not sure it's page 43 of the of the Treasury where there's no dialogue and it's just Batman desperately trying to stop the guy from stabbing him in the neck. Right. And he's slowly squeezing the guy's throat and then he grabs the knife from him, turns it back on him and knocks him out. And again, it's a really fantastic sequence. There there are two elements from from that whole there are three things actually from that whole fight scene in the gym. First of all, I like the fact that it's in a gymnasium. I don't know if they shut down a YMCA somewhere on <laughs> Gotham's Lower East Side, but it's in this brightly lit gymnasium where you see a basketball hoop. I was like, why are they doing this there? I was that, you know, I, I, when I, before we, we got on uh, uh, today, I went back to, you know, kind of refresh my memory. And it's, again, it's one of those things that, why are they in some random gymnasium? You know, um, but I, I, the, the parts that I like about it are 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 not just the, that wordless scene where you watch the progression of Batman turning the knife back on Ling, but on a preceding page where you get your exposition, where if you've missed everything up to this point, you could still follow the story, where Ling basically explains where we're at, brings us up to date, but also Adams uses just one panel to do it with like five heads of different different aspects of Ling's face of him telling this story. And again, this is where it's brilliant artistry. It's really just such great storytelling. It's a great fusion of the art and the writing. Um, again, as I have always called at always for as long as I can remember anyway, I've called Adams and O'Neill, the, the Lennon and McCartney of, of comics because they didn't get along in, a, in, in, in a lot of ways. Um, but they also were, when they were at their best was when they were with each other. And this is one of those sequences where you look at this and you're like, man, you are, you're looking at two masters, the economy of language and the economy of imagery, but both work together to tell you what you need to know. Boom, right there. And you're up to date. If you've missed the previous issues. Absolutely. Absolutely. So later on, we're reintroduced to Talia. Uh, she is being guarded in this time, this time by Ubu. And she looks smashing. She's in a winter coat, but it's, but it's kind of slit up to her navel yeah. almost on the side. And you see she's got like these hip boots on. I mean, yeah. she's just unfathomably gorgeous, <laughs> dramatic looking. And yeah. I mean, you know, like a lot of the great artists, they don't need a lot to do a lot. You look at the how Neil Adams draws... Talia's, uh, Talia's face. And it's really yeah. just a couple of marks. Yeah. You know, just blot, blot, blot for the eyes, a little tiny line for the nose, and then these black lips. But it just gives you this whole sense of this exotic beauty who is, you know, kind of simultaneously, of course, incredibly alluring, but also terrifying. Yes. Uh, Batman faces off with Ubu again. He grabs Talia by the wrist. She calls him Darling. I yeah. love that. I wouldn't dare, I wouldn't try to run from my Batman. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then for his trouble, Batman gets a ski to the head. Yes. <laughs> Which is great. Which is from another, it's from a, a woman named Molly. It's somebody else. And then Ubu, him and Ubu get in a fight. They take off. And then Batman and Molly have to team up. And she kind of looks like uh, Vicky Vale. Uh, she does. You know. She does. And I think if I'd had, 
you know, if I'd had the presence of mind at the time, but now that I see it uh, again with, with today's eyes, if I would have cast her in the movie, I think I would have made her Jill St. John. Oh, sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we move on to this. Uh, there's a, an action scene with a cable car, which again, right out of sort of like on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Yes. There's the gunmen with the automatic machine guns. They're firing yes. on them. I mean, it's it, so it, great. yeah. I mean, it, you know, it's it's almost like maybe we could get Chris Nolan to shoot this. You know, like uh, we could just do one more Batman movie. Uh, it like it's, it's all I want, and you mentioned the John Barry music. All I want to hear in the background is dun 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 dun. And you know, just it's yeah, it, it's this is like, again one of those areas where you really do think of like this is, this is basically James Bond in a Batman suit, but it's awesome. There's a one. I mean, for, I mean, the the best parts of this story don't take place in Gotham City, and that's yep. what makes it so interesting. It's this globe hopping you know, uh, international intrigue kind of story that you really, per- certainly now, it was less um, surprising then, but now they almost always keep Batman in Gotham. Uh, the comics today don't necessarily, they, they've, they've kind of broadened it, but for a long time, Batman never left Gotham. Now this he's like in the Himalayas, and he's in Calcutta, and he's doing all this different stuff. And, it, and every bit of it works. At no point do you think to yourself, this just seems wrong. Yeah. No, it looks perfectly. There's a wonderfully comic panel where they throw a bomb into the the, the the bunker where the guns are firing. And the guy, there's one guy, he says, hold your ears. And it's all four of them, Batman and Molly and Ling. And they're all holding their ears. And it just looks funny to have Batman covering yes. his ears yes. before the explosion goes off. So then there's, we later on, there's a, there's a thing where they run down this icy hillscape. There's a really iconic shot of Batman just running directly at the camera. It's just like a little single and then there's a long shot of these caverns where he's running in. They make it into Raish's base. There's Ubu, Batman, and him get into another fight. And then there's Talia, and she's in her her uh, her outfit, which is a plunging neckline, and then a cutaway for her navel. Yes. Just again, it's just it's just revving up the fantasies of every teenage boy that sees this. Uh, Molly tackles uh, uh, Talia. She plants a big kiss on Batman. Molly's kind of like, I'd sooner be pecked by a rattlesnake. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this is fantastic. We see that Ra's al Ghul is dead, supposedly. And then it's here we find out the whole big about the Lazarus Pit. And then there's another wordless sequence. And again, this works really well as the treasure, in the treasury form where Ra's al Ghul comes alive again. And it's got this says, bearing a modern-day Lazarus arisen from the dead, a mirthless, insane joy glittering in his eyes. And, it's, and then it ends with a full-page shot of, of him uh, alive again, and he pulls his cape over. And it's just that single shot. And again, it's so beautiful to look at, huge. And it's followed, uh, again, by another full-page thing, which is the first page of Chapter 4 of Raish in the snow, shirtless, chasing after our heroes. Yeah, it's, it's great because... It's it's again, it's a, yet another element added to what is now accepted Batman canon, the Lazarus Pit, which is, you know, part and parcel of any Ra's al Ghul story. Um, and you're right. It just it just picks up from there. And, and I have to go back and look and I wished I had. But I think at the bat at the end of Batman 243, even the shot of 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 the way, you know, Ra's has that kind of mad look as he gets off the he gets off the slab it's a full page in, in this, but I think it was only a half page in the comic because the, it's so weird in, in, that you have these, you know, some of these iconic images 
And it probably had like a Tootsie Roll ad underneath, <laughs> you know, or some house ad that they had to jam in to tell you about the new issue of GI Combat. You know, it's it's now you 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 see it like in this one full page, which is what it should be. Yeah. Um, and he's got this totally insane look on his face. Um, certainly nothing like the reserved, you know, sort of uh, uh, imperious villain that we saw earlier with his suit and his high collar. And now he's like this total madman. Oh, it's it's an amazing sequence, and so, and so and then we see him running through the snow shirtless. Him and Batman get into a fight, with ends with, which ends with Ra's al Ghul tossing Batman into a cable car and knocking him out. Yes. So that, that's the end of that fight. Uh, <laughs> Batman finally wakes up. Ra's al Ghul has taken off. Uh, he's, he grabs Talia and he runs off. And then there's there's a ski chase. <laughs> there's a ski chase for Pete's yeah. sakes. <laughs> yeah. yeah so- with, and Molly with Molly in the lead. With Molly in the lead, yeah, so we see, and then she gets a uh, a ski pole. Jill St. John gets a ski pole in the neck. <laughs> so Batman Batman tends to her, and then he's carrying her through the snow. He says, "Don't be." She says, uh, "Guess I messed over. Guess I messed you over, huh, big fella? Getting myself stuck in the crunch. I'm sorry." And he says, "Don't be, kid. You're a good girl. One yeah. of the best." <laughs> yeah. And he kisses her on the forehead. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, we cut into the desert. We flash all the way across the other side of the country. There's a wonderful single of uh, Rachel Ghul and Talia, a big close-up, again, where she yes. looks just absolutely fantastic. And it ends with the, the sort of classic duel of Batman and Rach fighting with swords yeah. out in the desert. And again, this is one of those things that, okay, it probably shouldn't work because it's Batman shirtless yes. with his cowl still on. Yes. But I... Damn it! It looks so cool. <laughs> it's so great. It's it's you know, it, and again, it's one of those sequences. I don't know if you want. Do you watch the show Arrow? Uh, no, I've not, I've not seen it in a long time. Okay, I, I don't watch it anymore myself, but I did watch it up through their introduction of Razal Ghul. Right, right. And they they did this scene, and only they did it on a snowy mountaintop instead of in a in a uh, in a desert uh, uh, sequence. But it was basically the same. You know, the same exact sequence. And you're right. It shouldn't work at all. It also shouldn't work that the reason Batman figured out where to go is classic old school Batman is that in the wreckage of the hovercraft, he finds a lone leather camel bridle and he's able to figure out that because of the beadwork, it must be from this one particular region. <laughs> and so he goes there and basically waits for the camels to go by. And when they, they do, he knows it's time to pounce. I mean that is that is so outlandish and and so I mean you can almost hear the Adam West in that one and and yet it, again you don't even question it because it looks so good yeah so you you have them battling you have no idea how long their battle takes because it seems to be starting out sort of with the you know that you see that it, it's getting darker so it's at dusk and yet it seems to go on forever even yep. again it's only like one or two pages and yet it feels like this epic battle just in the way it's presented. Um, and then, of course, is, you know, the big payoff is that the, the sort of reverse, you know, uh, you know, deus ex machina is, is you know, the, the scorpion bite. Yeah, Batman gets hit by a scorpion which knocks him. Yeah, the, the middle panel on page 73 of the Treasury where the sun is setting. Yeah. It's, it's Batman and Rayshad Ghoul in silhouettes. And you can just hear the cling, cling, cling. of the. I mean, if you really want to just substitute Roger Moore and Christopher Lee from The Man with the Golden Gun with their duel, uh, it's pretty much yeah. that what this is. 
And right. so Batman gets bit by the scorpion. He uh, he gets a final kiss from Talia. There's a wonderful, amazing panel where Batman waits until night to rise. Yeah. And he comes out of the sand and he's all in shadow and it's really creepy. It kind of looks, I mean, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, the parallel of Ra's al Ghul coming out of yes. the Lazarus pit, rising yep. from the dead. Batman wanders into Ra's al Ghul's tent. He is as mad as he's ever looked. Yes. Neil, uh, Neil Adams great at drawing utter fury. Even Ra's al Ghul is surprised. He yeah. says, are you a man or a fiend from hell? Batman punches the living crap out of Ra's al Ghul, knocks him out, and then it ends with Batman Natalia in a giant clinch where she says, and I, am I also to be imprisoned? And the kiss tells you everything you need to know. She's got these great hip huggers on. She yeah. looks fantastic. And the story ends with Batman carting off Raish with his cape over his head, which is a, yeah. it's a great kind of indignity. Yeah. While, while Talia is off in the background. And it ends with, it says, now the night is silent and filled with grief. The end. Uh-huh. And then the one special feature that we do come with is the cover gallery of these four right. covers. And it is just, you this, as you said, this is the IMAX of comics. This yeah. story, it is just... As big as it can be, and it fits so perfectly that they did this for this form. Whoever's idea was to do this, good on you. Jeanette Kahn or Dick Giordano, whoever it was, great idea. Because this really makes for one of the great treasuries DC ever did. Yeah, it really. It's, it's, and, and it, it, as I was mentioning before, having it just, and I'm sure that it was because of the, the, the page count or however it was, but keeping it to that. Those four issues, because if you read the actual full story with other chapters by other artists that were that were done at that time uh, when the story first came out, it gets a little flabby. It gets a little repetitive. But keeping the first introductory chapter and then the the trilogy, the the three parter at the end, it really works. Um, I mean, there, there are even things that we didn't even discuss, like the little throw-in. Like you mentioned before, Batman standing on the side of the mountain, and there's the big face of – there's a big face drawn into the side of the mountain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, it's, and people have either argued whether it was Dead Man or Richard Nixon. Um, <laughs> you know, but it's just this screaming face in the side of the building that, again, at that size, just – it's like, man, this is fantastic. But yeah, at the, at the end, it was uh, when uh, Graham Morrison, you know, the, the scene where he kisses Tali and he refers to him as the hairy-chested love god version of Batman. <laughs> you know, and, and it is. It's like this it, this incredible finish. And I, again, I think that that last page where he's dragging him off was only a half page in the comic itself, which is amazing. I think they actually kind of embellished it and fixed it to be a, a full page. I'd have to go back and look. And I'll send you. I'll send you a coda for your for your show notes, or, or you could show it the, if you have the. Do you have the original issue? I do. Yeah, I, I haven't I, looked at it when I like you. When I read the story, I read the treasury, so I don't right, even remember right, what exactly. they did. Yeah. yeah, but it's. I used to I, in my mind when I opened it up and when I closed it, I would have this idea of of opening credits and then closing credits, and I would I would cast the movie. I had Christopher Lee. I had Caroline Monroe. Um, you know, the, the funny thing was is that I never did come up with a good Batman, but I actually used to write to DC Comics because I thought this is how the world worked when I was 10. I said, you know, I'd, I'd send them a letter saying, you need to make a movie of this, and this is who you have to cast. And and I'd, so I'd send it off to them, and, and of course it never happened, but I, I in my in somewhere in some parallel universe it did. 
I lo- yes, I like that idea. I'd like to go to that parallel universe. I would too. I don't. I don't want to live really in this world anymore. So I'd like to go to that. <laughs> if that parallel, that parallel universe probably has a lot of good things, and this Batman movie is just just one of the many great things about it. So, yeah, this is a great collection, and it also features one last bit is that this treasury features ads. I'm sure they just had a couple of pages to fill. Right. It features ads for two other treasuries, yeah. and it is Superman versus Wonder Woman and Superman versus Muhammad Ali promising coming this summer. So I mean, man, the DC treasuries were firing on all cylinders. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they point. were. Yeah, they were. They were. They, were, they definitely. I so miss these. Yeah. I so miss these. I, you know, I, and I understand why they don't do it, and you know, all of the unfortunate uh, economic reasons that they don't do them. And you know, I know that Marvel has gone back into into kind of dabbling a little bit and some of the some of the other publishers have done them sort of as a as a, a you know as nostalgic uh, products but man do I miss the the, the treasuries because they really and th- this is such a great example of it doesn't even have to be a, a a compilation of old material this material by the time this was published was only 5 years old it was it was basically new stuff and it was certainly contemporary because Neil you know Denny O'Neill was still working in comics Adams, by this time, the late 70s, was certainly working in comics, if not every month. But, you know, he was doing Superman versus Muhammad Ali. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah, he was at the height of his powers. And just the idea of being able to get this stuff, it's I'm I'm just I'm just glad that I I still have my copies because these are they're just uh, they're beautiful. They are. They are. Yeah. If anybody uh, if you ever see this in a store somewhere and you can pick this up for a decent price do it you will not regret it it is a wonderful adventure and if you've never read the Rayshad Ghul storyline this would be a great way to read it for the first time this would yeah, be a great introduction yeah even if you never even if you never read another story featuring him it's this one has everything it's got all of them. it's got the the love triangle the father the 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 would-be son-in-law and Talia you've got the the rising from the dead you've got the epic you know, global, you know, and the, and the thing that's interesting is that it's, it's, if you read the story, what Ra's al Ghul is attempting to do is actually pretty vague. There's no real, you know, I'm going to get a, you know, the, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, I'm going to use this device to do that, or I'm going to get the, you know, the sword of destiny or something. There's no, it, it, all you are told really is that he's taking over the world, which was something that again had been established over the course of the full story. But never in here is there like a race to get this device or we've got to prevent him. It's just no silly Batman needs to shut him down. And you just take it on faith and it works. Um, the one thing, I, it's funny, and, and I, I, I kept it consistent. All throughout our, our conversation here, you kept referring to him as Raish. And I kept referring to him as Roz, which is always, which is one of the great debates in Batman history is exactly how do you pronounce the name? And... It's funny because Neil Adams actually says one thing, and classically, Denny O'Neill is not, you know, what, what uh, uh, Adams says that he pronounces it Roz, and O'Neill is a little bit more circumspect, saying Roz is more popular, but it might be Raish. Because apparently it was Julius Schwartz who came up with the name and gave it to them, and then they just ran with it. But it was it was something that, that Schwartz wanted sort of a a Fu Manchu kind of villain. He wanted this kind of exotic international mystery man villain. And he gave them the name and then they went from there. And even, even O'Neill says he, his daughter is like a, a language expert or an international language expert. He gave it to her to get her to, 
to translate it. And I'll send you the link to that for you to include because I was able to ask O'Neill, now how do you how do you pronounce it? And Adams actually has a, a, a video that we're posting at the site also where he talks about how to pronounce Raz al Ghul. So I, I've never been able to do the Raish thing, even though when it's first written, it's R with a line over the A. To me, he's always Raz al Ghul. Fair enough. I mean, I, it's funny. I don't even know why I say Raish anymore because the only time I've ever heard it pronounced is in, of course, Batman Begins and on the Batman animated show. Right. And they say Raz. So I don't right. know why. I, I, Although I don't, he's, he's, I think on Arrow, they, it depends on who's talking. So it's ne- yeah, seriously, it's never been, um, I don't think it's ever been formally established one way or the other. So in my mind, I've tried the race thing, but I always go back to Roz automatically. Fair enough. Fair enough. So, uh, yeah, so this is, a, that is, that is limited collector tradition, C-51 Batman, really one of the great, great, great treasuries that DC ever did. So... Uh, Dan, uh, you know, I say thank you for threatening me to come on and talk about this because it really worked out quite well. I really had a lot of fun talking about it. And thank you for all the info you've done. And we should talk a little bit about this. By the time you guys uh, hear this, this will be the uh, this will be the, the, the culmination of a series of Neil Adams related things that you're doing over on 13th Dimension, right? Yeah, we've been doing 13 days of the Neil Adams Gallery. Um, I live in the New York area. Uh, for the purpose of your listeners. And Adams has opened up a new gallery in his studio space in Midtown Manhattan. Uh, It's free to the public, actually. It doesn't cost you anything to go. And so if you're out of town or you're coming into town for the holidays or any time of year, or if you're in town, say, for New York Comic Con or any of the other shows um, in the area, East Coast Comic Con next spring that's in uh, northern New Jersey, um, what you do is that you call, uh, and and again, you'll have all the links in your show notes, um, you call uh, the uh, the studio, and you can make an appointment to show up. And if Adams is there, he'll sign whatever it is you want to bring. He charges his – for a signature, he charges whatever he charges at conventions. Or you can buy different books that he has there that he'll sign for you. You buy the book, and he'll – you know whatever that book costs, you know the signature part of it is free. But all throughout the studio now are uh, original uh, – you know, his pieces of original artwork. A lot of it is more modern stuff because his classic Silver Age and Bronze Age stuff has been lost to the ages. Um, a lot of that stuff just plain disappeared or being hoarded by some collector somewhere, which is a, a, a good reason why we get to see any kind of Neil Adams artist's edition by IDW or any of the publishers that do these things. And I'm, I'm desperate for them to do uh, some kind of artist's edition, but it's just not really practical at this point. So it's sort of like walking through an artist's edition. You go down these hallways and there's just Neil Adams original artwork all over the place. And part of what, what are, what's included are recreations of some of his most famous covers including the cover to number 244, which is the final issue of this story, where it's the famous shot of Ra's al Ghul standing in the desert and Batman is lying on the ground with the sword looking like it's out of his chest. And there's, you know, you, you, Bat, you know, Ra's al Ghul is holding up the Batman suit. Batman, of course, is still wearing his Batman pants, so somehow there are two Batman suits there. Um, but you get, you, know, you can see that stuff, and what we've been doing at the site for 13 days is every day... Um, we featured a different piece of artwork along with Adam's own commentary on that piece of art. So also it's worth noting. And again, I'll send you the links for your, for your listeners. Um, back in February, uh, DC did Neil Adams month where they recreated some of his most famous covers, including 
This issue also, the, the, the Treasury edition, where they basically redid all those covers, but with either different characters or flipping the characters around. For example, the cover to the Treasury, the looming large in the background, instead of it being Roz, it's Damien, who of course is Batman and Talia's son and Roz's grandson, and they kind of move the characters around a little bit. And we had Adams at the site every day for a month talking about the new cover and the old cover. So he comments not only on the changes, but on his original ideas for doing these covers. So I'll send you all those links. I, I, it's really great stuff. And, and for me personally, for, for as long as I've been doing the website now for a few years, it's the stuff I'm probably certainly among the most proud to have been able to publish this stuff that, you know, getting Neil Adams to really kind of get into the nitty gritty of what he does. So this is the culmination of that. Uh, you know, this, this podcast is, uh, you know, we, you know, basically is the, the coda to this series, this latest series that we've been doing for 13 days. Awesome. Awesome. Very proud to be part of this in any so small way. So again, thank you for coming on, man. I really appreciate it. It's always fun talking to you and I guess we'll see you on episode five. Yeah, great, Rob. Thanks. <laughs> okay. Uh, thanks, everybody. Stay tuned uh, after the break. We're going to have some listener feedback, but in the minute, we're going to play some podcast promos. So uh, just stay tuned. We'll be right back. Batman Nightcast, a thrilling new podcast from the Fire and Water Podcast Network, hosted by Ryan Daly and Chris Franklin. Nightcast chronicles the Cape Crusaders' adventures in Batman and Detective Comics after Crisis on Infinite Earths. Highlights from this legendary era include Batman number 400, Legends, Mike Barr and Alan Davis, Batman Year One, Batman Year Two, Max Allen Collins, Ugh. Um, the new Jason Todd, Ugh. Millennium? You're not doing this right. Let me take over. Alan Grant and Norm Brayfogle. Alan Grant from Jurassic Park? Did you hear me say Norm freaking Brayfogle? Oh, yeah. Son of the Demon. The Killing Joke. A Death in the Family. Batman Year 3. A Lonely Place of Dying. Alan Grant, Alan Davis, Max Allen Collins. Why are there so many people named Alan from this era of Batman? The Rise of Tim Drake. Legends of the Dark Knight. And that's just up until 1989. Did anything exciting happen with Batman after that? You'll have to tune in to find out. Batman Nightcast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Find it on iTunes and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Oh, we forgot to mention your favorite issue, When Batman Fires Dick Grayson. You want to find another co-host? Oh, adolescents this generation have no respect and are a far cry from my sweet Jane Eyre and her friend Helen Burns. Why, just this afternoon I was Stella. Walking- and and you know what men too well uh, uh, uh stella men like the tragic mr rochester and teachers pa they're all like the villainous mr brocklehurst hey stella uh yes thomas as much as i enjoy um indulging your insanity uh, we have a promo to record oh dear and what might that be that is you and I telling everyone that we have a brand new podcast out there. It's called Required Reading with Tom and Stella. Once a month, we will take a look at a single work of literature, discuss it, analyze it, and determine if it's worth its place in the canon. Oh dear, that sounds delightful. 
Oh, I'm sure it will be. And you can find us on the Two True Freaks Network, which is at twotruefreaks.com. Oh, yes. Required reading with Tom and... Why is it Tom and Stella? Why can't it be Stella and Tom? It rolls off the tongue better? Okay. Well, that was easy. So, required reading with Tom and Stella at twotruefreaks.com. Thanks for contributing to the promo there. You did a great job. Oh, you are so welcome. And we're back, and as promised, we're going to do a little listener feedback. First up, we're going to start with new iTunes reviews. Was that silence awkward? Well, it should be, because we have no new iTunes reviews. Come on, everybody, give the show some iTunes reviews. We don't have to go over this again. It really helps the show more than probably anything else. Please leave iTunes reviews. If I have to do a contest, maybe I will do that. But please, leave us some iTunes reviews. I thank the uh, four reviews that we have so far, but we need more. So please leave some iTunes reviews, or in the next episode, that pause will get even longer. So let's move on to messages on the left on the website concerning uh, episode two, which was the Super Friends episode, which is Luke Dobb. Uh, my pal Ryan Daly, of course, does a bunch of shows here on the network, says, This was such a fun episode. The love and excitement you two have for this book radiated off of you, traveled through the sound waves, and burst from my phone speaker like the Atom himself. And speaking of the Atom and so many other superheroes, I finally get to see Alex Toth render. Oh my god, that art is gorgeous. Beyond gorgeous, it's beautiful. Beyond that, to borrow a line, I want to take it behind the elementary school and get it pregnant. Tot's 1970 Justice League is freaking incredible, not to mention the static statue shots of all the friends who had worked with the League up to that point. The page with Wendy looking for more Lady Leaguers reinforces my dream project to write a team up of Supergirl, Black Canary, Hulk Girl, and Mira. Ryan, I would love to read that. Go do that. Uh, he ends it with, great job on another terrific episode, and seriously, I'm having very untoward thoughts about the art in this book. Me too, Ryan. I, and I've had those thoughts ever since I was a kid, before I, I was old enough to even understand it. Uh, Chuck Coletta says, just listening, and I wanted to mention this before I forget, there was a great 80-minute Alex Toth documentary on three Space Ghost Dino Boy DVD. There were three very fine, very fine Toth collections. Genius Animated, the cartoon art of Alex Toth. Genius Illustrated, the life and art of Alex Toth. Genius Isolated, the life and art of Alex Toth. Highly recommended. Absolutely, Chuck. I haven't seen any of those specifically, but I'm sure they're really interesting. There's another book out that I had years ago, which is just uh, Alex Tote's uh, character model sheets that he did for uh, various animated cartoons over the years. And it's an amazing book to look at because you see all the turnarounds, all the headshots, all the poses he basically did for all the characters. For the Super Friends, the Three Musketeers cartoon that I guess they did at some point. I mean, you know, that stuff was never meant for public consumption, but it says something about how beautiful Tote's work was, that even you could dig out stuff that was really meant to be behind the scenes and just put it all in the book, and it, and it worked really well. So great, great stuff. My podcasting life mate, uh, the Irredeemable Shag, says, Another great episode. Loved hearing Rob and Luke love on this book. <laughs> Again, with the weird metaphors. And you are right. This cover is gorgeous. It's so good, DC used it for the cover to the Super Friends Showcase. And he provides a link. Yeah, DC knew they had a, a, had a winner with that one. Edo Boznar says, Wonderful yet again. I never had this one. And Danny, if you don't have me wanting to find it somewhere. All the great original artwork by Toth in the framing sequences and the cartooning tutorial in the back sound completely awesome. 
This is fast becoming my favorite FNW podcast. Can't wait until you cover some Marvel treasuries as well. Thank you, Ido. That's a that's a that's an enormous compliment because we have a lot of really great shows on the network. Um, Marvel treasuries. We will absolutely be getting to them. It's just been a quirk of fate that the first three and the next one are all going to be DC, but we will be getting to some Marvel ones because I love the Marvel ones too. We absolutely will, will be getting to them, so no worries there. Pal Ange says, I grew up in the era of the treasury books, but I always shied away from this one. Having read the Super Friends comic, I thought this would be too all ages. Now I realize my mistake. The Toth pages you posted are glorious and make me want to find this to own now. And a Toth rendered Supergirl. I don't think he ever drew her anywhere else. As you say, the heroes being friends, laughing, and being proud of each other is a sentiment sorely missed these days. And the reprints from being the JLA and not the Super Friends comic make this that much greater. Lastly, a request. Can you post can you post Toth? Can you post the Toth closing credo somewhere? I want to post that on my office door. Uh, and I went ahead and did that, that thing. Uh, and just talking about that inside back cover bit bio that uh, me and Luke talked about. And I did uh, post that onto our Twitter feed, which is at Treasury Comics over on Twitter. And uh, then Ange sent a photo where he did literally post that on his office door. So good on you, Ange. Uh, our pal Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast and Nightcast says, first off, yes, I do hate Marvin. It's the only thing I can think of. I've ever heard Chris say he hates uh, maybe Batman be Superman. But I love this treasury and this episode. I really can't add much that you guys didn't gush about, but it's just fantastic. I picked it up close to 30 years ago at my first comic shop after drooling over it in an old comic ad for the previous decade and a half. The Toth artwork is spectacular, and the JL, JLA reprints are fun. Luke's right. You do have to put on your DC Silver Age hat to fully enjoy these tales, but it's worth it. He also mentioned, for anyone interested, I wrote an article on this Super Friends tabloid for Back Issue Magazine number 61, which was published in the tabloid treasury size. So it's very meta. I have to, I don't believe, I, I can't believe I don't have that issue. I just, it, I just sort of missed it. i got to pick that one up. Uh, our other uh, member of the uh, network, Siskoid, says, I only very, very rarely caught Marvin and Wendy on TV, and my main experience of them was from a Super Friends coloring book I had. I had that same coloring book as well. Great to hear Luke on a podcast. He's a treasury edition himself. Absolutely, it's true. Thank you, Siskoid. And then Diablo Frank says, another treasury edition that merits the name, thanks to the original Toth art and it being a proto-trade of noteworthy JLA stories. I love that cover and happily have it on both my Showcase Presents Super Friends volume and as a painted cover by Alex Ross for the color trade, which reprinted the vignette and Toth animation editorial. So glad they have they did the League retrospective that places Martian Manhunter and the lovely heroines in a context of being at least honorary associates of the Super Friends, aside from John secretly being El Dorado the whole time, of course. By the way, I see the Super Friends as a separate club from the JLA, as they had their own base and expanded roster. They really only had four core members in common, which occasionally overlapped from GL, Flash, Adam, and the Hawks. In retrospect, it was sort of a joint task force between the League and the Global Guardians. <laughs> I never thought of it that way, but, but I like it. And then he mentions in terms of the debate about the how durable the treasuries are. He says, I just find treasuries cumbersome and weak. I was an early adopter of trades for the same reason. They've got a square spine with strong glue, and I can kick the crap out of most of them without, being, without their being blown to bits. Uh, meanwhile, black and white magazines of the 70s and 80s were more flexible than trades, so I've got a lot more of them still intact, too. Whoever starts an epic illustrated podcast, please keep me in mind. Anybody out there willing to start that? You know where to contact Frank. Uh, we're gonna now. I'm gonna list uh, all the retweets and likes from Twitter. Really appreciate that. Which is, and we're gonna go through this list. It is uh, Black Vulcan 69, Bold Outlaw, Bronze Age Babies, BT, BTB Blog, Chuck Rod 75, Classic JLA, Coffee and Comics Blog, Comic Reflection, Koi Avenger, D Destroyer, 
Demi Mertakis, Duran3870, Dr. Ann70, DS and RS, Figure Nation, Garage One, Gloria Walthar, Hammer Strikes, Harlem Shadow, John D. Knoll, JSLab425, Kyle Benning Art, Lotix One, Lola Bell17, Mountain Flower One, Nerd Church Radio, President Zen One, Quantum Images, Rolled Spine, Slang Word, Superman is Ace, T Gens, LXV, and Two True Freaks. And of course, if there's anybody that I missed or forgets, forgot to mention, please let me know. I do want to mention you on the next time we do the feedback. And finally, I got a private email from Tom the Milwaukee Mauler Carr, and he is on Twitter at, at Milwaukee Mauler. Uh, I don't I didn't know if I was allowed to quote any of his emails since it came to me. Uh, as I said, privately. So I'm not going to I'm not going to do that here. But I do want to thank him for the email. It was a very nice message, and he said very nice things about Treasury Cast, and I really appreciate it. So uh, that's going to do it for this episode of Treasury Cast. I have to thank my pal Dan Greenfield again for pinch hitting. Uh, I kind of had a weird schedule blip, and I needed to record an episode, and Dan stepped up at the last minute, which I really really appreciate. We had a lot of fun talking about that amazing Batman treasury. It's totally whatever you can find, wherever you can find it, whatever you have to pay for it, it's worth it. It's such a great collection, so I thank him again for doing the show. It's always fun talking to him. Of course, if you said, if you want to find the show over on Twitter, it's at Treasury Comics, and you can find this and all the other episodes of this show, all of our other great shows over at our website, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com. So thanks, everybody, for listening, and I hope you enjoy it. And we'll be back with at least one more episode before the end of the year. So until then, go big or go home. You still have me at a loss, Rachel Ghoul. Just how did you learn who I am? I control a vast global organization, Detective. Obviously, Batman's activities require certain costly implements. It was a simple matter for my people to learn which wealthy Americans were amassing what Batman might require. The one who matched my daughter's description of you was Bruce Wayne. Next time, I'll have to glue my mask on.